welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Victor. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first Mark Dunley talks with two guests about the need to implement climate education in our school public schools, a move proposed in a bill pending in the New York legislature. Then I, Sina Bazila Hickey, I spoke with the Mediterranean Grill, neighbors of the sanctuary in Troy, about their hookah section. Later on, Bria Barthel interviewed Valerie Rapson, an astrophysicist at SUNY Oneonta, about solar eclipses in preparation for the near total eclipse coming on April 8th. After that, Jean-Rémy Monet of the Black Theater Troupe of the Upstate New York talks with us about their upcoming performance of The Mountaintop, directed by Michael Lake. Finally, we highlight former Nature Lab intern Maya Sanders about her work, and she shares what she's learned from working at the sanctuary. But first, hear the headlines. A community justice panel in Albany on Saturday focused on re-entry and mental health for those incarcerated. Organizers say these topics are important as the justice system shifts towards seeking more alternatives to incarceration, while also grappling with high rates of people re-entering society after serving their sentences. The Times Union reports that the teachers' union and others continue to push back on the usefulness of federal standardized tests in evaluating the progress of students in the third to eighth grade. The latest test results were more than half a year late and had contradictory results. Many parents refused to allow their children to take the test, and teachers complain that they are forced to teach uh, to the test rather than focus on helping students learn. We'll hear more on this in our first story. In other education news, on Monday, the University at Albany announced that it has received approval to offer three new degrees in education starting in the fall of 2024 through its teach-out agreement with the College of St. Rose. Education students there can immediately apply to UAlbany for the new programs to complete their degrees. The Times Union reports that Pioneer Bank is upgrading its fraud detection programs in hopes of reducing incidents of check washing, where checks are stolen from the mail or other sources that the pay and amount information can be changed, but the signature remains intact. Governor Hochul is pushing to expand the state's hate crime laws, saying that threats are up over 400 percent since the start of the war on Gaza. Hochul has been criticized for primarily expressing concerns about anti-Semitic threats, though she acknowledges that there have also been increased threats involving Arabs, Asians, transgender, and the LGBTQ community. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. Emily Faina with the National Wildlife Federation in New York City and the Associate Professor Alexa Schindel 
of SUNY Buffalo talk with Mark Dunley of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine about the need to implement climate education in our public school systems. One of the issues that the New York State Legislature is considering this year is whether or not to basically require our public education system um, to include uh, climate education uh, as part of their curriculum. And we're talking to uh, two individuals involved with that effort. Uh, Alexa Schindel is Associate Professor at SUNY Buffalo and Emily Fano, who is a climate resiliency educator for the National Wildlife Federation in New York City. So why don't we start off maybe just explaining you know, why is this an important issue and what would the bill actually do? Well, thank you, Mark, so much for having us. And this is Alexa speaking. This is such an important issue um, for so many um, across the state of New York. We are facing a climate crisis, as you know, and as you've experienced yourself, um, and as I'm sure many of the listeners have experienced, this has come up many, many times. Um, and particularly in the past year, we've had the Buffalo blizzard, which is where I'm located, um, just about a year ago, and we had the wildfires this summer that were impacting um, so much of so so many of us across the state of New York and impacting our breathing. Um, I myself had um, my first asthma attack in seven years from the wildfire um, attack um, or wildfire crisis, I guess. Um, and what we've heard from our students across um, multiple locations of the state is that um, they're not getting climate education even when they're faced with a crisis and experiencing a crisis such as a blizzard or um, the wildfire experience, um, our, our educators are not equipped and prepared to talk about and teach about um, the climate crisis. And so um, it, you know, the impetus is there, the need is there, and um, there's a lot of training and things that are needed. And so this bill um, establishes a course of instruction and learning um, expectations on climate education in all public pre-K, elementary, and second secondary schools across the state, um, I should say public schools, and they include a lot of principles and concepts, um, including and related to environmental justice. Um, so the bill centers equity and justice, um, which is also really key. This is the most comprehensive interdisciplinary P-12 education bill in New York State. Um, the instruction includes principles and concepts related to the causes, impacts, and actions that are required to mitigate and adapt to climate change across multiple disciplines. And it provides professional learning and ongoing support, both in-service and pre-service for educators. And that's really um, a really key piece um, for me, and that has brought me into the bill um, because I've seen the ways in which we have not prepared our teachers um, and the way that's sort of piecemeal and sort of happening here and there across the state. Um, one of the things that, though, um, another key piece that I want to highlight here is, um, or two key pieces, it establishes an Office of Climate Education and Workforce Development. And then it also establishes green career and technical education programs. And that is in support of the CLCPA. Um, yeah, so those are some of the key highlights. Emily, do you wanna chime in? Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, I would also add to what Alexa said about how our students are experiencing these climate disasters firsthand, but they're not learning about them in school. Um, if they're lucky, they get maybe one or two hours of instruction on climate issues. Uh, and that's mostly in high school if they're taking AP environmental science, but we know that less than 10% of students take that class. 
so the instruction they're getting is not equitably distributed. Um, here in New York, back in September 29th, when we had an extreme rain event, 150 public schools were closed um, and mass transit basically shut the city down uh, because mass transit shut down. So, um, you know, one, one important thing to note is that New Jersey is already doing this. We're basically trying to play catch up to New Jersey and other states that are already um, providing this kind of education to their students. And those students that are getting this education are going to be um, prepared for the jobs that are going to be out there for, um, you know, offshore wind and other areas that are, are needed to decarbonize our economy, um, according to the Climate Act. Um, you know, we, we are supposed to be uh, approaching 100% zero emission electricity by 2040, as outlined in the Climate Act, which is our state law. Um, and we're not going to get there without education. Um, we were very uh, dogged in our efforts to make sure that education was included in the Climate Act final scoping plan. And the Climate Act uh, points out that we absolutely need um, robust climate education curricula and professional learning for teachers if we're going to meet our decarbonization goals under the Climate Act. Now, you mentioned several times, you know, the New York did pass uh, the CLCPA. Um, so it's a state that, you know, the elected officials recognize the climate is a serious problem. I, I, I've noticed this bill has been around for, for a couple of years, apparently. You know, what has been the response in the New York State Legislature? Um, why hasn't it already passed? And, and, and what's the sort of expectation as to what happens with it this session? Um, I want to give a little background um, in answering that question. Um, and then hopefully, Emily, you can also fill in some of these gaps, too. Emily and I are part of the Climate and Resilience Education Task Force, which Emily co-founded. Um, and that's co-managed by the National Wildlife um, Federation, and we act for environmental justice. And so um, this organization, in addition to some of us individually who have since then joined the organization, um, we're sort of seeking opportunities for climate education. And each of us were individually looking at the bills that had been put forward. Um, I actually did this with my my climate education class last spring. We were, we analyzed the bills together um, and looked at what was um, in the bills. There were four bills that were put forth in um, the last legislative session. And we looked at what was put in and what was missing from the bills. And we highlighted and made ourselves a little chart around what we wanted to see and what um, I, I was working with pre-service teachers and they were like, we need to see these things and we need our administrators to be able to see these things and to have them in place so that we can put put um, climate education into, into practice. And so, um, so the bill itself was, um, this bill was drafted by um, uh, Senator Guarnardas last year and put forward. And then this year, um, it was co-drafted by he and his legislative team, as well as an intergenerational committee made up of, and this is, I think, key high school students, teachers, college professor, professors, education profession, professionals, et cetera. Um, and so we worked with the team of Senator Guarnardas to um, recreate this bill and to um, include the many aspects that were missing from that from, from the bill previously. Yeah, and I, and I would also add that we created a, before we actually went about drafting the bill, which was adapted, high, very heavily adapted from Senator Gunardis's original bill, um, we actually developed a New York State climate education platform, which is the first 
platform of its kind for climate education in the state. And it's on our website at CRETF.org forward slash platform. And what we really did is spent quite a lot of time as a committee um, studying, um, you know, bills in other states and uh, programs, climate education programs in other states like California, um, Maine, Connecticut, Oregon, and what uh, the best practices were in those states. And then we pulled together all the elements for a comprehensive climate education program that we thought were really necessary for a program like this to succeed. And so the bill was uh, aligned to that platform. Um, and uh, that's why I say it's heavily adapted from the Gunardis bill, because it really expands on the Gunardis bill and includes uh, things like teacher training, as Alexa mentioned, that were not in the original bill, um, it, as well as the Green Career and Technical Education Programs, the Office of Climate Education, which New Jersey already has, by the way. Um, and so it is, is, it is a substantially different bill than the original. So I'm going to be quick on the last minute. I'll ask you two part questions. Has the teachers union, particularly UFT or, or NYSA weighed in? And if people want to find out more about this bill or even to talk to legislators, how, how, how can they find out information about it in 45 seconds? Sure. They can go to CRETF.org forward slash policy. There they will find a toolkit where they can get engaged and support us. We have over 160 educators that have signed a memo of support. Um, for the bill, over 50 organizations and 70 individuals with institutional affiliations. Um, the higher ed union, UUP, is on board. We're really grateful for that. And we know that um, United Federation of Teachers in New York City is certainly very supportive. We would like to get as many unions on board as we can. And we're working on that outreach as we as we speak and as we also go to Albany with our students to lobby on behalf of the bill. We're out of time. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Emily Fano, Climate Resilience uh, Educator, National Wildlife Federation, and Alexa Schindel, Associate Professor at SUNY Buffalo. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Next, we head to our neighbors, the Grill Mediterranean, to hear about their new hookah section and rental venue space. In a time when gathering and coming together with people is so important, there is a new space available in North Troy. There's an Istanbul hookah place next to the Mediterranean Grill, which has been on our program before, and I'm here with the owner, Farhat. Introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Farhat, and this is my second year in Troy. I'm so happy to be here. We are hearing a little bit of the uh, the spoons clinking in the little uh, Turkish tea glasses, which is um, a very staple for for that region. Is is the tea? There's also hookah. There's couches. So what else are you seeing? Can you describe the room? Yeah, the room is you know uh, the culture of the Turkish and culture of the even Italian. We have a coffee culture of the Greek style. We have a baklava we're serving here. And we have a sweet here we're serving during the day. So this tea, the tea is tea. pretty unique, and tea, so is the coffee. Could you, could you talk about the culture behind the tea and the coffee? The Turkish tea is really authentic tea. It's long, long time ago, like they made it and they found it. It's special winter time, it's hot tea, and you know, just black tea. And what makes it different from, say, like an English tea? Is English tea, they're usually using like uh, milk inside, but this is just like authentic black tea resting 15-20 minutes and with hot 
boil waters, like boiling, like you see the authentic teapot over there. Yeah, it's a gorgeous like copper teapot and a stove, and it's so it's generally a little bit stronger, right? Stronger, yes, so stronger, so we can make it a little bit lighter too. It's a you know, but authentic one is like half black tea, then the twenty five percent is black tea and seventy five percent is hot water. Should be the glass, you know, authentic uh, evil eye, or because protect uh, protect your uh, from the bad bad things. That's we believe it, you know. Also, you know, this is our chilling zone, like tea, coffee, some Turkish traditional drink. We have different soda we already ordered from Turkey, those fruity drinks, juicy. And you also have iron, right? Iron, shalgam. And what is iron for those iron who don't know? It's made in the milk, made in milk yogurt. You know, the Greek yogurt. We have a, people know the Greek yogurt. And same, you just put some water inside and then you mix up a little bit salt and then comes with like freshy if you have a, like a high temperature to make you more more calm more relaxed you know if you wanna if you don't if you can sleep so the iron is the best option to get drink and then get sleepy you know so these things are unique to the turkish culture and also just the region around it yes. how important is it to offer these specific cultural offerings here in North Troy. Why is it important to have hookah and Turkish tea and Turkish coffee and iron available here? The some uh, cultures, uh, hookah comes from Middle Eastern, Egypt and Turkey, Iran, Iraq, you know, and they have, especially when they have an off time, they chilling tobacco, like fruity hookah, you know, it's not like a, a drug or it's not like a wheat or it's not like you know, it's, it's like a more like a tobacco flavors you know and it takes like one hour 45 minutes to you know enjoy the video hookah it's like we're making here homemade and you see the the, the hookah hookah bottles and then we have a charcoal we fire charcoals and we put the tobacco on heads and then the bottom is a water and you pop up you know you you blowing you know you're blowing in the, the water then the smoke comes up. It's, it's like a authentic, you know, you're feeling you're like back, back home, you know. If you like, uh, if you've never been in Middle Eastern, so this is the place to come and see authentic uh, place, you know, like for hookah, for tea. This is the reason we people come here, some looking for a specific like cultural, traditional place. I was in five years in North Carolina, and then my off day was Tuesday, and I was driving 45 minutes to go to Dubai hookah place and hang out over there with Turkish tea, Middle Eastern culture, some hookah. And then I say, I have a space, what, why, why should I do here? And then I, I opened the space for my culture, you know, for my place, for my, my own time, you know. I say people need that because when they off time, like gentlemen you see now sitting over there from Afghanistan, every Monday this time he's, he's here four hours, hang out soda, tea, and then hookah. So these are very great relaxing and gathering daytime opportunities. You also have this as a nighttime rental for DJs and parties, private or otherwise. Can you talk a little bit about that side of this venue? So that side is, uh, you know, we have a tank scout. We have a nice community here and especially a nonprofit organization. And the other one is a LGBT group a couple of groups we have here they renting here 
and private party they do here. Other things is Saturday we have a DJ come in and then some Brazilian community and Brazilian party, Mexican, Latin community, they renting here. They do a party here, dance here. They have a, like a special, you see the floor is very clean and then shiny. So any community, any organization, people can rent here. They can come and then check it up. We do usually 30 to 50 people, 50 to 100 people, we rent it. And right now we don't want to give you the price, but you can come and check it up and then come ask the price. And then we are very like flexible. We don't like crazy going the price, you know, it's true. We want to people know about us, about cultures. Like, yes. You mentioned the dance parties. Are these sometimes open to the public? And how do people find out that there's a dance event coming here? Yes, uh, I also help the community from my page, Instagram page, Facebook page. And what's the name? Grill Mediterranean is in the Instagram. Mega Istanbul Food Court in Facebook. Also Grill Mediterranean also in the Facebook. They can find easily. We open just now TikTok is 101 Hookah Troy. This is our TikTok page for the specific for here, especially for here. And I'm so happy to I see different culture they are renting. Especially for 3rd of February we have a Turkish family coming. And another one is 10 February, we have a Samba Carnival party. It's going to be upstate, first place is going to be in here. It's surprise, in Brazilian community, they're going to do the uh, Samba party, 10 of February here. We and the best way to get information about renting the space is to get in contact with you and negotiate what that might look like, right? Yes, they, they can call restaurant 518-203-7800. And they can con contact with the Instagram, Facebook, uh, I'm here 20 hours, my whole life is here, almost uh, 16 months is over, and no off day, so yeah, I like to work, stay here, and then Troy, we need to work together to be successful for the Troy, you know, it's not about only business uh, happy, also the Troy City Hall is happy, and Troy, around the Troy we happy, and safe, we bring the very safety, safety issue here, you know, we have a a huge family here, so so many guys, cousins here. When I come here before, this place was bottle can return, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, I I, reno I renovated, I changed it, and I spent my whole time and I invest money here. I yeah, I've definitely seen how much time and love that you have absolutely invested here. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, this space is available. There's both American and European football mm -hmm. to watch. There's hookah. There's cultural drinks and all that. Um, remind us again uh, the best place to get information and anything that I forgot to ask. The information is my name is Frat and last name Karatas. And I live in Troy, right here. They can text in the Instagram page, Grill Mediterranean. And Facebook also, Grill Mediterranean also, Mega Istanbul Food Court. Right, we are in the Greek church. St. Basil, uh, 908 River Street. We are neighbor with the back home with the Greek. Now we are neighbor here too, you know, it's so funny. And then, uh, you know, we, we always together. We never gonna go far away, we always together, you know. Europe culture should be around with Europe cultures also. Bring the show them, the, the neighbors, how, what we are, we have a cultures, what we do in the back home, 
Italian has espresso, baklava, Greek, Turkish has their own good breads. We're making home, homemade bread here too. We just start Turkish homemade bread. And we, we have a right now very good catering. We do the companies for the companies for the catering, especially Thursday night. We do sidewalk worries. We do for them uh, catering, non-profit. Thank you so much for telling us all about this. My pleasure. Thank you for coming. Please, and enjoy the Turkish tea now. And that was our neighbors, the Istanbul uh, hookah bar and Mediterranean grill. For those just tuning in, I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. So normally in this segment, we have meteorologist Hugh Johnson, but he's out this week. And so instead, we have an interview with another scientist, Dr. Valerie Rapson from SUNY Oneonta, who will tell us about eclipses with a couple unexpected twists. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Most listeners are probably aware of the fact that a near total eclipse of the sun can be viewed in the capital region and beyond on Monday, April 8th. My guest today is Valerie Rapson, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at SUNY Oneonta. I first heard of Dr. Rapson. I'm a member of Friends of Five Rivers, a nature group that supports the Five Rivers Environmental Education Center in Del Mar. And on Saturday, February 3rd, from 2 to 4 p.m., Dr. Rapson will be doing a presentation at the Friends of Five Rivers annual meeting. So. I thought it would be nice to have her on, and once you hear her, she's so lively, I think you're going to want to say, okay, get me to Five Rivers on Saturday. Valerie, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks so much for this opportunity. It's great to be here with you. So first, what the heck is an eclipse? Oh, yeah, we're we're super excited anytime that there's a, a lunar solar eclipse coming and we've got this solar eclipse coming up on April 8th. Basically, what we get to observe from Earth's perspective is the moon appearing to cross in front of the sun and, and block out either a majority or in this case, all of the sun's light if you happen to be standing in the right position to be able to see that. We had a solar eclipse just a few years ago in 2017. What's different about this one? Yeah, we did. So back in 2017, the uh, the path of totality where the moon completely covers the sun crisscrossed across the United States. But every time these eclipses happen, the path is a little bit different. So uh, those of us in New York are really excited this time because the path of totality does cross part of New York State. So if you travel a little bit north or west of the capital region, you'll be able to see that total solar eclipse phenomenon. I was trying to figure out how the heck a small moon blocked out a big sun. And then I realized, oh, well, if I move my fist across my face, that it right. blocks out more than just the size of the fist. The yeah, farther exactly. away it is. 
Yeah, it, it all has to do with perspective and distance, right? The moon is really small, but it's also a lot closer than the sun. And and nature kind of gave us this beautiful thing where it's just right. The moon appears to be just the right size to cross in front of the sun. What makes us get 95% and Buffalo area get 100% if we both have the sun and we both have the moon? That, that's a great question. So uh, everybody would, would get to see totality if everything was lined up kind of in a flat line in outer space. But if you imagine the sun, the earth, and the moon, the earth is tilted with respect to the plane of the solar system, and the moon's orbit is also tilted a little bit with respect to that same plane. So basically not everything is lined up exactly in a straight line. So because of all of these tilts, you have to be in exactly the right place to see the moon completely cover up the sun. If you're a little bit of in a different location in New York State or, or within the United States, then the angle that you're looking at will be different, and the moon is only going to partly block out the sun during the eclipse. And I was surprised to see how long the process takes. I was looking at a site, and it said that in Albany, things begin on April 8th at 2.12, it reaches maximum at 3.26, and it ends at 4.36. Two and a half hours? Yeah, yeah. We get to experience it for quite a while. Basically, what you have to wait for is the moon to move through its orbit around the Earth. And at that two o'clock time frame in the beginning, the moon is just starting to appear to touch the edge of the sun. And then it slowly moves across the face of the sun. Around 3.30, you'll have that maximum point or totality. Uh, and then the moon's got to keep shifting. So it's going to kind of pass uh, over the face of the sun back on the other side. So the whole process does take about two, two and a half hours. How many superstitious traditions are you doing to try to keep it from being foggy or, or rainy that day? Oh, so many, right? All of our students are, are doing, you know, no rain dances, whatever they can come up with. <laughs> we, we definitely wanted to be clear that day for sure. There's about a 50-50 chance based on historic uh, cloud coverage that New York State will be clear versus cloudy. And there are special tips for viewing. Uh, I guess sunglasses, since there's no sun, won't work. What's a better approach? Yeah, yeah. You definitely want to make sure that you observe the sun safely during any eclipse. So uh, you can get special solar eclipse glasses that block out over 99.999% of the light, which is way more than regular sunglasses. Um, you can also use telescopes with special solar filters. And here at Oneonta, we're testing out something cool. We're actually going to observe the solar eclipse with a disco ball. I'm sorry. Can you say <laughs> that again, please? Yeah, a disco ball, right? So, so imagine this. You're standing outside. It's a beautiful sunny day because it's going to be sunny on the eclipse, I promise. Uh, and you put this disco ball outside. The sunlight's going to come down. It's going to bounce off the little mirrors of the disco ball. And it's actually going to make a projection onto the ground, onto a nearby wall. And it's those projections that we can look at that will look like the circles of the sun. And you can actually watch the moon encroach across the sun for the eclipse. Uh, and, and then, you know, you can even see sunspots if they're visible and big enough, too. Sunspots? Yeah, these are, are, they look like little storms, but they're actually pretty gigantic. They're like planet-sized storms that appear on the sun. And uh, through safety glasses, they look like little black dots. So you would see those in the projection, too. So at SUNY Oneonta, mm -hmm. 
You're going to be outside with a disco ball for viewing the eclipse. And disco balls have many mirrors, so you would have lots of eclipses in the image. Yeah, Yeah, which makes it totally fun. If you spin the disco ball, they kind of dance around. It'll be really, really cool to see. Where do I sign up for a ticket? (laughs) Well, you can just show up. Our our event is free. People can find more information on our website shortly. But uh, we're going to have an event. And... Pretty much every science center and college with an astronomy program across New York State is going to have an event. So even if you're not near Oneonta, you know, just just look up your local science center and see what they're doing, especially if you're Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Watertown, Plattsburgh, those areas. Those are the ones in totality where you have that two and a half minutes where you actually can look safely up at the sun and see the corona and all the beautiful stars right there during the day. Now, I was reading the description on your page at SUNY Oneonta, and it said that you work on exoplanet research. Say what now? Yeah, so so exoplanets are, are planets that orbit other stars around the sky. So basically, imagine going outside, looking up at any of the stars in the sky. Many of them probably have planetary systems around them, just like our solar system. And we have some some telescopes on campus, including the largest optical telescope in New York State, where we can actually photograph the stars and detect when an exoplanet crosses in front of them and measure things like the size and whether or not it's a rocky or a gas giant planet. So my students and I are trying to contribute to this area by finding more exoplanetary systems and also learning about the properties of the ones that we already know about. My mind gets blown thinking about astronomy. I mean, if I think about the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper, I can handle that. You get into Cassiopeia, it gets a little more complicated. But when they talk about the billions of light years and getting to the edge of the the known universe and expanding how I, I it. How do you think in terms that huge yeah. about distance and size and stuff? It's it's hard, you know, and, and every year my introductory astronomy class goes through that that same kind of mental crisis that we all go through of, you know, the universe is so big and I'm just so small. And, you know, we try and make analogies where possible, but there's just so much out there in outer space and so much we still have left to learn. Now, when I think of public education about astronomy and exoplanet research, how can I do this interview without asking about Neil deGrasse Tyson? Of course. So I know he he bills himself now as an astrophysicist Mm -hmm. rather than astronomer. And I heard him say once that it's because astronomer was too close to the word astrologer. (laughs) Yeah. You know, back thousands of years ago, astronomy and astrology were kind of one in the same. It was just the studies of the skies. But now we know so much more and we really can focus on the science aspect of it. So we we all like to kind of call ourselves astrophysicists because it really enforces the science and stays away from the astrology. Getting back to the eclipse, I just wanted to ask, are there any weird effects in nature on birds or animals during the moments of totality? Definitely. Basically, when you're in totality, 
it gets dark for, for two to four minutes. And, you know, the animals, especially, you know, they, they sense the encroaching darkness and they feel like it's nighttime. So whatever, you know, nightly patterns the animals have, you know, at the farm, the animals will often walk back towards the barn, the birds will quiet down. Um, that type of thing is seen in nature all the time. And then there's always that slight sense of confusion right afterwards where it seems like nighttime only lasted a few minutes and then the animals kind of go back to their normal routine. Um, but it does seem to kind of quiet things down and just, you know, influence nature in a really spectacular way. I'm so glad I asked. That's really interesting. Yeah. So again, this is Valerie Rapson, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy and Astrophysicist at SUNY Oneonta. And if you want to meet her live, she will be at the Friends of Five Rivers annual meeting on Saturday, February 3rd from 2 to 4 p.m. Valerie, I was so glad to meet you. Have a good eclipse. Yes, thank you. I hope everyone will get a chance to get outside and enjoy it. As you just heard, there's an opportunity to meet Valerie Rapson in person and to register for the events. The Friends of Five Rivers.org is where you'll find that link. And... Remember to stop by the Sanctuary's open house on the 3rd, this Saturday. Um, we will be here. So a lot of great things happening this Saturday. Now, Jean-Rémy Monet of the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York joins us to talk about the upcoming performance of The Mountaintop, a fictional depiction of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last Night, directed by Michael Lake. Jean-Rémy Monet, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thank you for uh, bringing me here. It's always a pleasure talking with you guys, whether it's in person or on Zoom. I, every time I get a call to talk to you guys, I'm always excited to, really, to talk to you, know, you guys. So thank you. Can't be yeah. more than excited <laughs> than I am to talk to you or to see you again. Um, I have been lucky to see a, a few of your productions. Uh, for those who may not know your company and who you are <laughs> and who the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York is, can you tell us some more about that? Well, the Black Theater Troupe of, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I've moved up here from the city. Originally, I'm from Haiti. I've been, I've been performing since I was like nine years old. Then I came to New York, to the state from Haiti in 1982. I didn't speak the language, of course, so I didn't do theater for a long time. So uh, I went to college in New York City, and then uh, and, and in 97, I decided to move to, you know, to the capital region because I needed to get back to theater. Uh, so I went back to you know, uh, school for, you know, just to take performing arts. I wanted to be more comfortable with the English language. So uh, my first play in 1999, was at Hubbard Hall Theatre Company in Cambridge. So, and uh, I met Kevin Maguire and Benji White, who was running the theatre company, and then they auditioned me, and then, uh, and I was cast in my first play in English, in John of Saint, in Saint John, John of Arc. Okay, and, uh, and uh, I stayed there at Hubbard Hall because I still, you know, wasn't comfortable enough to go out there in the, in, in, in the rest of the world. So I, I performed with them for a couple of years. And then Kevin said, Remy, you need to be out there. You know, uh, uh, go audition, go for, you know. So, so I, I'm saying all that from 99, 2000, okay, 
and I was performing until 2009, and I still realized that I was one of probably two, three black actors in the area. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's when I decided uh, in 2010 to start the theater company. And uh, we, uh, we were Soul Rebel Performance Troupe at first, and, uh, and then I, dis- I worked for the state for 30 years. From 88 to, uh, to 2018, I retired back in 2018 from the state. I was doing theater part-time um, the whole time, and then after I retired, I decided to change the name of the theater company and to the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York. That was the best decision I ever made because people know exactly what we do. Mm. Okay, and, uh, and right now I can tell you because of that, you know, I'm getting families, people reaching out. I'm getting playwrights. Just before I came here, I'm getting a, a, a new play written by, uh, they're sending me uh, from all over the country and even from England and other countries, I'm getting plays. For, you know, whether it's a new playwright or, uh, or sending me plays to, to consider you know, for production. So I started a theater company for two reasons, mainly to give opportunities to BIPOC actors, specifically black actors, and to tell our stories you know, in our cultures, things they never teach you in school, but I'll make sure that you learn it you know, with the black theater job on our stage. I learned most of my American history through theater since I've been doing this. So it's, it was very important, you know, to do that. And then I meet actors and new actors. I'm at the supermarket. I see a young, a, a, a young black kids and, and, and all old. And I talk to them. Next thing you know, they're on my stage. So that's how I'm, I've been building this. And now you can go out there, you know, uh, theaters can do more because there's more people of color, you know, uh, to make the stage more diverse to work with them. So you mentioned learning through theater, learning history through theater. Yes. Uh, you know, our education system yeah. misses a lot of important history. Yeah. What is the play that you're bringing to the stage, and what kind of lessons can we take from the mountaintop? Well, the mountaintop, you know, it's as you described earlier, it's a depiction of, you know, I mean, that's that's the day in, when he was in a hotel, um, in uh, the Lorraine Motel, and just before, you know, you know, he got shot, he was killed, okay? And then uh, it's, you know, he was met by a young woman and uh, supposed to be, I don't want to say too much, supposed to be an angel, okay? And, uh, and you know, who came to let him know about his future and how he's going to die and stuff like that. And, uh, but the main thing is about this play, you get to know a lot about Martin Luther King. You get to know, I mean, you know, a lot of people think, you know, those people back then, Martin Luther King, like they were, they were sent, they were angels, but they were people just like us, fighting mm-hmm. for, you know, uh, a human right, fighting for, you know, uh, people to, uh, to, to love each other, to get together. It's the same thing, of Malcolm X was doing the same thing, but, it, you know, they both do it different way, differently. But, you know, those people, Martin Luther, Luther King, he wasn't an angel, you know, but he make mistakes just like us, just like everybody here. So he tells his story, you know, uh, that most people know and most people don't know, and uh, how he's gonna die and what's gonna happen to the future when he's gone, you know. Get so uh, you learn to know about him, about his weakness, about his, you know, uh, strength, you know, and and how he fought 
I mean, because of him, that's why I'm here doing this, you know, telling more stories because of, so yeah, so that's what the play mainly about, you know, tell you his personal life, what he did and what his work's going to continue to affect, you know, you know, uh, for, you know, us for a long time now. And, and uh, that's why we celebrate him and uh, because he did something really good. Yeah. So can you talk about the wonderful team that you have producing Bluebird? <laughs> Speaking before we started interviewing about Michael Lake, who is directing it. And um, I'm not sure if it was before the interview or recorded that the many other people who are part of this. So talk about who's who's a part of this. Well, when uh, I... The mountain tap was the first was uh, not the first. I'm sorry. The mountain tap. I directed it for Confetti Stage, and in uh, in March 2020, uh, the last performance. You know, uh, it was a three three night performance starting from the end of February through March 1st. March 1st was the last performance in 2020. Two weeks later, everything was shut down. Mm. Okay. We did it at Delenda, uh, if you, I don't know mm -hmm. if you know that place on Central Ave. And uh, there was like about 100 people in the audience in, in March 1st, 2020. We don't know how many people in there had COVID because it wasn't really out there. Right. Yeah, the, the people were just talking a little bit about it. Nobody was wearing masks. So uh, this year, for this season, I decided, for Black History Month, I decided to bring that show back because... Uh, it was too great of a show, and 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 I needed to bring it back on a on a bigger stage. Okay, there were a lot of things we couldn't do, in a uh, uh, in a uh, because of where we were. You know what I'm saying? Because it was a small stage, and then we didn't have enough uh, in a rehearsal because there's so many tricks in there. So I decided to bring it back. I directed it back then. I decided, okay, I'm gonna bring it back on a bigger stage. I need new directors. New directors, you know, bring different ideas to it, and and then uh, and, uh, and because I didn't want to repeat the same production if I directed it, so I did. I brought up Mike Lake, and then Angelique and Ini was the same performers who did it back in 2020. They're back with us, uh, and then we have a great stage manager, a great stage manager, and uh, and uh, assistant stage manager, and uh, doing great. And Mike Lake was the uh, was one of our f uh, one was one of the first actors that performed with us when we started the theater company in our first it was in our first production so so those and plus we had cap prep you know a great set set designer and a lighting designer a bunch of professional people and we were ready to put on some really really great performance uh. where can we get information right so right now uh if you want tickets uh, for the show, we uh, uh, practice. We'll just say where they're available. Practice, yeah. Practice is uh, uh, doing all the ticket, you know, reservation, doing our ticketing. So you go on practice website, cap web website, and a Black Theater Troupe website. You can get all that information. You can get information, and you can for ticketing. But to, for more information about the play, you can go on our website or on social media, uh, face, Facebook. You can get more information about that. Thank you so much, yeah. uh, Jean Rami Monet, for joining that us. Was perfect. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. Wow. Yeah. That, <laughs> My mom speaks French. <laughs> okay, that's. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> 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 
That you was are. good. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate you being <laughs> no, here. No, thank you. I'm glad thank to be you, here. Sir. Yes. As we prepare for our upcoming campus open house on February 3rd, we hear from former Nature Lab intern Maya Sanders on what the benefits are of being an intern with the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Yeah, next on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, WOOC producer Brandon Miller speaks with RPI junior Maya Sanders. Maya is a student in the Sustainability Studies program and a new intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. What are sustainability studies and what is the focus of your research? So at RPI, sustainability studies is a humanities kind of background to science. Um, and so you have a lot of free space um, to work with that. Usually people focus on um, some life science and then bring in a technical background. Um, for me, I'm more focused on ecology um, with a social science background, less technical. Um, and my research on that note is a ethnographic case study on the sanctuary of independent media um, and their work in building uh, Troy's first community science center. That is very exciting. How did you get into sustainability studies? <laughs> That's a very funny, uh, funny story. Um, I came into RPI and did uh, three majors before I got to this one. And the baseline of that process was that I'm really into um, STEM and specifically like the environment. And I wasn't really sure how to bring in like the rest of that technical portion to it or keep the science well focusing on people and how they interact with the environment. Um, and so after a lot of trial and error, I found this one and the department works for me, the field works for me, and I'm, I'm in love with it. So um, as a Nature Lab intern, that stands for North Troy Art, Technology, and Urban Research in Ecology, you're going to be helping us develop a citizen science center, a community science center in Troy why are, you, what, why are you interested in this kind of pioneering work of building a science center in Troy? So growing up for me personally, um, I found science through my very niche interest in media and having my grandfather give me Nat Geo magazines when I was 11 and just generally being a curious child and finding this area of life that embraces curiosity. But I know for most people um, with my background from like an urban area like Brooklyn, um, it's a lot harder to have access to those things. And especially in Troy where there's RPI, it's a major institution with all these STEM resources, I think it's really important to bring that STEM um, back to the community that really needs it. And so I see an opportunity to do that here and I want to get involved. It's so important to um, build that bridge between academe and our surrounding community, especially in a place like North Troy, which is in the shadow of RPI. When you talk about doing an, ethnographic, an ethnographic study of the sanctuary, I know that this summer you were the Uptown Summer Intern focusing on grassroots science. Yes. Um, what did you learn in broad strokes that would um, apply to your ethnographic study so far? Mm, I think the most important thing that I can take from the summer to bring to the fall would be that oftentimes we, as in the people who are like part of the sanctuary or doing the, the field work, start off with intentions and ideas that are good. 
Um, but sometimes we don't know how to execute those things. And from the community's aspect, people that we're trying to affect, um, they have a different perspective. And sometimes our our good intentions don't always fall where we want them to. And so trying to have that community voice and keep that sustained throughout the process um, is really what I'm interested in. And I think that's the main thing I took from the summer. And could you share uh, some of the personal relationships that you developed with the youth who you worked with this summer and how that added to your insights? Yeah, I didn't even know how much I like working with teens and in general um, teaching people about these things I'm passionate about. But I think I worked with a lot of kids from Troy High School and like North Troy um, who are in like their junior and senior years of high school. And I think those are some of the most beautiful connections I've made since I've been um, at RPI and Troy in general. And it's good to see them around sometimes. And um, what do you see as some of the biggest environmental challenges that our communities, especially um, uh, economically disadvantaged communities and communities of color, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, these communities face as we move into the future? I think being overlooked is the biggest issue. A lot of times um, when it comes to environmental racism and injustice, um, people who are in these urban environments or whatever get the back end of the pollution stroke. And so in a lot of, uh, in the face of development and um, pushing forward technologies, someone somewhere has to have that trash. Someone somewhere has to um, face that waste odd rhyme, but um, oftentimes it ends up being the urban population. And so finding a way to be heard and get that voice out and talk about like, hey, you can't dump here or, you know, you did 30 years ago and like now everyone here has cancer, can you help us kind of thing. Like getting those voices and stories out there and getting that help that we need um, is the most important thing moving forward. So I think you're talking about something that seems very intersectional, connecting science technology and media and creativity and communications. Um, how do you hope that a grassroots community center could help in the struggle? So the most important thing that um, that sort of place can do is offer tools and training. And so um, you never really know how permanent um, your place or anyone's place in this world can be. So if you're teaching someone how to do something or giving them that skill set, they can go on and teach others. And not only that, but they can begin to produce their own. So the weight of the work is not only on you anymore, and you're also um, uplifting a community through that work as well. So as a junior, doing this research, helping with grassroots science in Troy, New York, um, how do you hope that this builds a foundation for your own self to make a difference in this world as you move into the future? I think this is um, the beginning of me exploring what I want to do further. I've already decided um, from the summer that I want to do grad school. And so this is helping me figure out like what exactly I want to research during that time. And it also helped me figure out that I want to work for some kind of nonprofit in the future as well. So. That's great. Do you have any final words of wisdom or anything else you want to say? Stop using plastic and don't pollute. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maya. Of course. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Victor Max Valentine.
And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Thank you so much to Bria Barthel for rolling with our tech issues earlier and for preparing for the show. Thank you, Victor Max Valentine, for hosting the show. And thank you to Marshall Hildreth for being the engineer for the first time. And what a bump that was. And thank you to Mark Dunley and all the people who make this show possible. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.